Well, in this last message on biblical eldership, we are skimming the surface again, and I apologize. There's just so much that uh, we could say and probably need to say about eldership and leadership in the local church, but perhaps we'll pick up some more teaching another time. We've just slotted uh, this short series is just three weeks long. An author by the name of Alexander Strzok identifies five distinguishing features of New Testament biblical eldership, and so far we have covered just two. We've, we've covered pastoral leadership, and last week we talked about qualified leadership. So two weeks ago we asked the question, what do elders do in the local church? And the answer that we gave was that elders provide pastoral leadership. They shepherd the flock of God that is among us. That's what elders do. From 1 Peter 5, for example, we said that uh, shepherd elders protect the flock. Part of the leadership responsibility of elders in the local church is to protect the flock from false teachers and bad theology and wolves in sheep's clothing. So elders are supposed to guard the flock or protect the flock and watch over them. That's what they do. They, they keep watch. Furthermore, we said that uh, shepherd elders feed the flock because all New Testament elders were to be uh, able to teach or apt to teach, not meaning necessarily that each one of them each week is engaged in a teaching ministry, but they, they have the aptitude, they have the ability and the skill to teach. And so the teaching ministry historically of the local church has been entrusted to the elders. They are the overseers of that so that they can give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who might contradict it. This is all review, of course. Uh, last week or two weeks ago, we talked about shepherd elders also leading the flock. So they protect the flock, they feed the flock, they lead it. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So elders rule in the church, or they govern, they direct, they steer, they lead the church in the direction that God wants it to go. In addition to that, shepherd elders help to meet the flock's many diverse practical needs. And we just took a benevolence offering, and that helps us to meet the practical needs of people in our own church family who from time to time might have an emergency and they just can't make it. Also, another example, James instructs uh, the sick members of the church to call on the elders for prayer and anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. So that's a practical need that's entrusted to the elders. That doesn't necessarily mean that elders do all of that, but they ensure that the practical needs are done. They may delegate it to someone else. They provide loving, caring, tender, pastoral, servant leadership in the church. And then last week, so that was two weeks ago, and then last week we asked the question, who can be an elder? And that, of course, addresses the whole question of qualified leadership. Who qualifies to be an elder in God's church? We looked at two primary passages, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And there were lots of different 
uh, responsibilities or characteristics that should be resident in the life and ministry of an elder. We took all of those characteristics or qualities and we, we put them into three broad categories, remember. The first one was the moral and spiritual character of elders in the local church. The second category was the abilities or the skills that are necessary in order for an elder to keep watch over the flock. And thirdly, spirit-given motivation that an elder should have for the task. So we, we covered a lot of ground last week. I just gave you 60 seconds, but there was a lot of ground last week, and you were thirsty after it was over. You were panting and rushed back to get a glass of water or a drink of coffee. There's a lot of information. And so if you missed that, and you're, you're coming in fresh on this message, you might want to go back to our website at thegatheringwindsor.com and just look at the top of the page there where uh, you'll find, you won't find the arrow, but the word sermon audio, you can click on that and, and, and listen to last week's message or even the week before, and you'll be all caught up. We said five distinguishing features of New Testament biblical eldership. We've covered pastoral leadership, and we've covered qualified leadership. So now let's go on to the third and talk about shared leadership. It's a highly significant but often overlooked fact that when Jesus appointed leaders in the church, he didn't appoint just one man, right? He, he trained and he equipped 12 apostles, and he let them loose on the church. In, in other words, he, he, he gave the church plurality of leadership. There wasn't just one person in charge. These 12 apostles had authority and, and, uh, and they led in the early days. Later on, the apostle Paul would perpetuate this model of leadership by writing uh, these words to, to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, for one thing, he he doesn't say one elder, but elders, plural. Appoint elders in the church. We don't know how many. It doesn't say how many were appointed in each church, but we know there was more than one appointed in each church. And then over in Acts chapter 14, we learn that Paul and Barnabas, in one of their missionary journeys, went back to visit the churches that had been planted in Derbe and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And there they they strengthened the disciples and they encouraged them in their walk with God. And then you come to verse 23 where it says, in Acts 14, 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they appointed elders in every church. That means the churches were already functioning as churches even before they had elders. So churches can be churches without elder leadership. We we know that. That's implicit in the text. But there comes a time when elders need to be appointed. And that's, that's what they did. They came back around on this second missionary journey and they appointed leaders in every church. They appointed elders. And that's what we envision for the gathering. We envision a, a council of godly elders who will be responsible for the ministry of protecting the flock and feeding the flock and leading the flock, 
and providing for the practical needs of the flock. Because that's what elders do. They shepherd. They care for the flock of God. However, the gathering will also embrace the concept of first among equals or a leader of leaders. An extremely important aspect of biblical eldership is this principle, this idea of first among equals. And there are several texts we could point to. 1 Timothy 5.7 is one where Paul writes, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So although elders are to act jointly as a council and share equal authority and responsibility for leadership in the church, it appears that all elders are not equal in their giftedness. They're not all equal in their biblical knowledge or their leadership ability or their experience or even their dedication. Therefore, among the elders who are particularly gifted leaders or teachers, those men will naturally stand out among the other elders as as the leaders, leaders among equals within the eldership team. Does that make sense? And and, and then Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17 that some elders are worthy of double honor. Not all, but those who are ruling well are worthy of double honor. And then he goes, and especially those who preach and teach. So, first among equals. There's that principle again. Jesus chose and empowered apostles. How many? Twelve. And yet out of that twelve, there seems to be a a small group of, of elders who were first among equals. And they were Peter, James, and John. And out of those three, it seems like Peter was sort of the, the, the head guy, the, the chief speaker, the natural leader, the man of action, the guy who was always putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, but but he, he challenged the group, and he energized the group, and he strengthened the group, and he, he really ignited the group. He was first among equals. He was a leader of leaders. I think without Peter, the group would have been less than it could be. They still would have been leading and they still would have been teaching and evangelizing and baptizing. But when he was surrounded by the other 11 apostles who were his equals, Peter became stronger and he became more balanced and and, uh, he was protected from his impulsive nature and his fears. I can imagine some of the apostles going every once in a while, Peter, shh, shh. Or why don't you stick your other foot in your mouth? Just chill, chillax, Peter. It's okay, we got this. You know, we're a team, don't forget. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. So they pull him back, rein him in. So these 12 guys together were, were dynamite. But he, Peter, was simply first among his equals. And so this principle of first among equals or leader of leaders is, is here in Scripture. We see it in the New Testament. And so here at the gathering... Our plan is to continue to consider the present pastor and his successors in the years ahead uh, as the leader of leaders, first among equals. But that doesn't mean that the pastor of the gathering 
or subsequent pastors of the gathering will do all the preaching and all the teaching and all the decision making and all the hospital visits and all the, all the, all the. But he will share in that with the other elders. It just means that the pastor will function as the first among equals among the elders. And probably, he, he will probably be the most recognizable elder and probably the most public elder. And that's often the way it, it, it happens in churches that practice biblical eldership. So that's our understanding of, of shared leadership. And we're, we're studying this as we go along. And as, after we study, then I speak on it. And then we go back and study it some more. So that, this is our understanding, uh, as of now, uh, on shared leadership. So we're looking at these biblical essentials. Eldership in the New Testament. We think it's defined as pastoral leadership and qualified leadership and shared leadership, but also male leadership. And there's, there's much about biblical eldership that challenges church-going people today, especially the high standards and the enduring emphasis on qualified leadership. That's, that's challenging to all of us, me included. I mean, these are pretty high standards We talk about the qualifications of elders, pretty high standards there. Yet nothing is more objectionable in the minds of contemporary church-going people today than this idea of an all-male eldership. The most explicit Bible passages relating directly to eldership being males in the church uh, are 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 15, and 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 particularly, and 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. So those three passages are kind of the, the key passages relating directly to the uh, leadership of men in the church. So what else should we say? We, we, we need to say very quickly and very emphatically that the Bible views men and women as equal. Right? They're created equal in the sight of God. Absolutely equal in the image of God. They stand equal in terms of human dignity. Men and women are equal in sinfulness. Have you noticed? (laughs) And equally in need of a savior. Uh, Men and women alike can find forgiveness and redemption through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Furthermore, we, we believe that men and women who are born again by the Spirit of God, uh, receive gifts for for service in in the local church. So all of the spiritual gifts are equally accessible by men and women. There's absolutely no argument there. Nevertheless, the Bible does reveal a pattern of distinction when it comes to the roles of men and women in the church and in the home. Men and women are equal before God. There's no question about that. We're not, we're not at all denying that. In fact, we're promoting that. We're equal in the sight of God, and yet we have different roles or different functions at home and in the church. I believe that distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order. And generally speaking, they find an echo in the human heart. 
I mean, we just know this to be true. This pattern begins with the story of creation, the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, and it flows out of Genesis 2 right through the Old and the New Testaments. And in the history of the church, in the last 2,000 years or so of the church, the, for most of those 2,000 years, the eldership in the church was male. So should that pattern continue? Or should we get with the times? Should that pattern continue? Or should we get politically correct? Is male leadership purely cultural? As some would explain it away, that was just cultural in the New Testament. It was a pastoral society. It was a male-dominated society. And so, or should male eldership be continued? Well, here at the gathering, we believe that it should continue. Uh, Because we believe that the Bible reveals that a pattern of male eldership in the church and male servant leadership in the home is permanent, not cultural. It's not a cultural phenomenon. We believe it's permanent. Because Paul ties it to the creation order, not to culture. He goes right back to Genesis and talks about Adam and Eve and the the kind of headship that should exist in a a God-fearing home, in a God-fearing family. But on the other hand, even though we will continue to say that, that eldership at the gathering will be male, we will continue to pursue women to be involved in every aspect of ministry and leadership in our church. Every leadership position in the gathering is open to women, except for one. And that's the role of elder. And the subsequent ministries that flow out of that. So, leadership positions in our church are open to women, with one exception. We will invite women. No, Actually, no. We will pursue women to serve as deaconesses and to teach children and serve on the welcome team and help with hospitality. We'll pursue women to work with finances and serve as ushers and tellers and prayer partners, cook meals for our our missions teams and our care teams and distribute benevolence and share their faith with friends and neighbors. We'll pursue women to minister to the sick and visit in the hospital, fight against abortion and fight against pornography and write articles for publication and and thus uh, expand the kingdom. We'll we'll encourage women and we'll pursue women to help with literacy and the disabled and aid the poor and visit in prisons and counsel and pray with other women and support missionaries and lead us in public prayer and share a testimony and use artistic gifts to enhance worship and play an instrument or sing on a worship team. Uh, Do I need to keep going? There are so many things that women can do and only one they can't. So tell me, could somebody please tell me why we always only focus on the one thing they can't? That is so frustrating from my perspective. And that's just my perspective, which doesn't really matter, hill of beans, but I thought I'd share it anyway. We will pursue women in this church 
to fill many different ministry positions and leadership positions. We'll pursue them to, to do that. We will not pursue women to be elders because in our opinion, the Bible does not allow for that. And, and as a result, they also will not be pursued for the public teaching of the Word of God when the church is gathered together. Male eldership, male leadership is a distinguishing mark of New Testament biblical theology. But I don't want to leave it there now that I've sucked all the energy out of the room. I want to talk about servant leadership because that's also a very important distinguishing mark of biblical eldership. Because when we read the scriptures, we see that the principle of servant leadership is very much alive in the life and teaching of Jesus, and, it's, and it permeates the whole of the New Testament. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See? One of his primary purposes in coming was to serve. So people who follow in his wake ought to be servants. The under-shepherds of the church ought to be servants. Luke 22, Jesus said, I am among you as the one who serves. That was the sort of the, the capstone of his life. 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says... As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So elders are, are to be servant leaders like Jesus, not rulers, not dictators, but servants. Remember what Peter wrote, 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you uh, as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Yeah, exercise oversight. You need to do that but not under compulsion, willingly do so, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So following the biblical model right here in 1 Peter 5, elders must not wield the authority given to them in a heavy-handed fashion. They are supposed to serve, be servant leaders who guide the flock carefully with humility and meekness and love and Tenderness and wooing, uh, stray sheep. Come on back to the fold. Come, we miss you. Come, we love you. We need you. You belong here. And all that goes along with that servant shepherdness. So we're eager. I'm eager for these five distinguishing features of New Testament biblical eldership to be present in our assembly as we move forward. We 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 don't. We don't have any elders appointed yet, but we, when we do, we want them to, to be evidence of these distinguishing features. Pastoral leadership, qualified leadership, shared leadership, male leadership, servant leadership. Five distinguishing features of New Testament eldership. So would you, would you please pray for us? Because this is a... This is a huge task, but an honorable one that we're engaged in. Asking God to set apart the people who will lead us now and for years to come as elders in God's church. We want God's will to be done. Nothing more, nothing less, but nothing else. 
We really need God's will to be done when it comes to uh, selecting and appointing godly men to serve us in the future. So let's pray about that together. Father, we pray that you would indeed instruct us and teach us from your word each and every Sunday. We think of what we just heard this morning, this last message of biblical eldership. And yeah, there's some tough teaching in here. It certainly cuts against the, the grain of our sophisticated contemporary culture. But we want to stick to the word. We really try, we want to try and be as close to the word as we can get. And pray that you'll, you will bless that, that you will anoint that, that you will give us a green light uh, to, to keep moving forward in that regard. So, Lord, we humbly come before you this morning and say, please steer us aright. Guide us and lead us as we recruit and eventually appoint elders to serve in our church. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.